is. I saw it. I don't know what it was, Dad. A spaceship or something. How big was it? And there have been rumors. Rumors? That... Oh, Mary, you know I can't talk about that. I better go out and take a look. George? Flying saucers, disappearing scientists. What next? Hi, Mom. Good morning, dear. Did you have a good sleep? Gosh, yes. Let's not start that flying saucer nonsense again. Welcome to Worth Watching Host Choice, where we hosts finally get to choose what we're watching. Today, we're talking about the 1953 alien body invasion horror film, Invaders from Mars. I'm your host, and I have to admit I have a fetish for long, drawn-out shots of military hardware moving around. <laughs> oh, you must have liked this one. <laughs> My co-host is Guy, who's planning to go to a dermatologist one of these days about that rash on his neck. Yeah, I'll give it a couple months to clear up on its own. <laughs> That's how I do everything. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. Uh, so, you know, when we do these host choice, we tend to do kind of a financial update. So I wanted to talk about, you know, uh, we said previously that your share of the loot from this podcast has been being deposited in a bank account all along. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I have some good news because, you know, our corporate masters oh. decided to uh, invest your money and they actually <laughs> made you millions of dollars. Ah. So that's pretty cool. Unfortunately, it was in Bitcoin. <laughs> so, so oh well all right <laughs> you know we'll just keep at it and maybe next time it'll work out <laughs> yeah that figures so uh this film was my choice uh, give, well first of all before we get into my background do you have any memory or background of, the, of this film uh, no the only thing i really uh can recall about it is um when you originally mentioned the idea of uh, watching this, I uh, I thought I'd need to obtain a copy somewhere, and at the time there wasn't any easily obtainable copy. And then it turned out just recently, while I was looking through my DVD binder where I put all my DVDs in, I had a copy of it in there. I think I must have gotten it as, you know, one of those cheapo six-packs of science fiction classics or whatever. Uh, but I'd never watched it. It was just sitting there waiting to be watched. Yeah, and originally I was uh, planning for us to watch this, you know, a few months ago. And it turned out, like you said, it wasn't available in streaming. And I didn't have, myself, I didn't have a, a physical copy. So we watched Night of the Hunter instead, which I love that film also. But it turned out in the meantime <laughs> that they actually did a, a re-release where they, you know, remastered it. And it had some new extras and everything. So um, when that came out, and here's the thing in terms of our filming schedule, you know, we probably won't release this for six months, a year, who knows, you know, it's going to be way <laughs> in the future, but it's exactly the kind of thing we started the podcast to do, which is, uh, I had, you know, I saw this film as a kid and I, and I really, you know, enjoyed it. And, and, and as a kid, I loved anything where, you know, the kids are solving the problems and the adults are kind of useless, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> this is a classic film for that. So it made a lot of sense for me. And then uh, some years ago, and I hadn't seen it since then, some years ago I watched it and I was really impressed by the artistry of it. You know, the, the, um, you know, the, the production design and everything, which we can talk about. And that, and that made me want to, want to watch it again. So uh, thankfully we have this new version out. I don't know if it's that's going to be put on streaming or not. 
This was a low-budget independent film, and the director, a guy named William Cameron Menzies, he was actually a production designer who'd become a director, and so I think that impacts this film hugely, as we'll see as we go mm. along. Yeah, one of the interesting things is this is the very first Aliens Take Over Your Body movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I and I couldn't believe that. Yeah, it was three years later that Invasion of the Body Snatchers came out. So, you know, this beat everyone to it. And who knows, that may have, this movie being out may have influenced them. And there were many uh, directors who saw it as a kid, you know, John Landis, uh, Joe Dante, and all that, who were very, very influenced by this film. Mm-hmm. And it's in color, which is, for the time, uh, you couldn't necessarily rely on everything being in color. Right, right. But, and I th- it, it was, and it's kind of a almost a simple color, right? But again, that's a design choice that really fits in. And one of the things I think is really interesting about them having a production designer as the director is they had very little money. And instead of this becoming like an Ed Wood film, right, where, you know, the sets are falling over and all that, <laughs> their low budget caused them to come up with really creative solutions. And I think probably the production design is better than if they'd had more money. Could be. So, yeah, we can Speaking talk of Ed Wood, do you know what year Plan 9 from Outer Space came out? Uh, let's do a little check here. <laughs> Good question. Because I'm thinking that was an Aliens Take Over Your Body movie. It is 1957, and this is oh. uh, 53, so it still beat it. <laughs> hmm. All right. But he may well have been influenced by this. I didn't see that in my research, but quite possible. Okay, anything else before we get started? Uh, I don't think so. And now on to the film. So we start out with a pretty nice painting of space. And one of the things that makes this work pretty well is that they have these planets there, but the planets are actually models. So the camera is able to kind of move in and the, you know, the planets sort of move past the camera, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And we get this narration, the heavens, once an object of superstition and awe and fear. <laughs> we get the big long thing. And it finally ends with what sort of life inhabits these other planets. And of course, again, 1953, this is just an absolute classic time for science fiction. You know, it was starting to explode in the magazines and everything. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the whole idea of space travel and all that. And we fade into the bedroom of a young boy, David, as his alarm goes off which confuses his father in the other room who thinks it's time to go to work and he tries to get up and start going to work before it turns out it's like 2 a.m. in the morning or something. (laughs) The reason the boy had the alarm set is he wants to look at some constellation that's visible. And this kid, David, I mean, the actor is perfect in the way they did him, right? This is the total 50s movie kid, you know, with his curly hair. He starts half his sentences with gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. He's very sincere. Yeah, and I have to admit, as soon as as soon as he appeared as like the first human in the whole movie, and it's this young kid, I think, oh God, it's going to be a precocious kid movie, <laughs> and uh, it is, but it's not it it's not that terribly annoying. So. Yeah, he's not obnoxious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So his father comes into his bedroom, and he's annoyed at having been woken up at first. But then when his son tells him there's this celestial event that won't happen for another six years, his father gets all excited, and they both start looking through the telescope. (laughs) And then the mother comes in and sends both of them back to bed. And it turns out the father's a scientist. 
And despite being awakened, both parents are very nice and understanding. You know, they're they're really, really good parents at this point. <laughs> In general, this is probably as good a place as any to mention it. The the adults in this movie behave like more or less ideal adults, you know, with, with notable exceptions who are, <laughs> aren't under their own uh, yeah, sound mind at the time. Right. But uh, in general, the adults in this movie are pretty decent at adulting, which uh, <laughs> is not something you can always rely on in movies of suspense and science fiction right. and all that stuff. Yeah, and I think that's an important element to things because this boy is used to the adults around him acting re- responsibly. And so as he sees that change, you know, it's very disturbing. Yeah. So he goes back to sleep and there's a big storm outside with lots of lightning. And he wakes up and goes to his window and the curtains are being blown around. And he looks out and we get this scene that is going to keep coming back to the movie it's a real set piece, which is this hill behind his house. So there's kind of this hill through a little bit of a forest and then a fence. And then there's a bunch of sand that is out there. Yeah, and this this is a real good piece of production design, uh, I would think. This is, uh, it's memorable and that's it's good because we'll be seeing a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so he then he sees a UFO, and it's, again, that totally classic 50s UFO. And at that time, people were, you know, reporting these things all over the place, and this is when UFOs were becoming famous. And so it's that saucer look and everything, right? And it comes over the hill behind his house, and then it seems to fall somewhere. And we get the first from, from David where he says, gee whiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it won't be the last time. <laughs> <laughs> They picked a good color for the UFO too. It's like a pretty much a solid. It's it's glowing, you know, mm-hmm. so you can't make out any details on it except the outline. Um, but it's got this kind of bluish green color. It's like a uh, I don't know if you've ever seen a monarch butterfly chrysalis, mm-hmm. but it's similar to that color. And also, pretty you cool. only see it for a few seconds, so you don't have time for it to look cheesy or anything, right? Yeah. And then. <laughs> We see a reverse shot where the UFO is descending into the sand. And if you, you know, if you pay attention, it's clear that the UFO actually came up out of the sand and they just reverse the shot, uh, which is fine. That's a good way to do that. And there's a pretty compelling looking greenish shell of earth that clothes around it. It's sort of this glowing, you know, earth, uh, 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 pieces of earth that are, that are closing up as the UFO goes into the sand. At parts of the shot, you can tell that it's reversed because you'll see little bits of sand running back up the <laughs> edges of the protrusion. But uh, but it's it's decent. You know, it works mm-hmm. okay. So the boy wakes up his father again and tells him something has happened out there. And the father goes to his room and sees a storm behind the hills and says, well, if a meteor fell, it would have woken everyone up. And, you know, David says, but it didn't fall. It landed. It's a spaceship or something. And the father puts the boy into bed and says it was all his imagination. He says in the morning they'll go out and look. And if they find a flying saucer, they'll contact General Mayberry, which may be a slight uh, foreshadowing. (laughs) I wonder also if there is some connection between that and the Andy Griffith show, (laughs) which I think was also called Mayberry RFD, and it took place in Mayberry. I don't know. Same same general era. I don't know which came first. Yeah. 
when the father gets back to his bedroom with his wife, it turns out he actually is concerned because David is clearly upset and he feels like there might be something behind that. So he decides to go out and check and he puts on his robe. His wife doesn't want him to go out, but he points out he's been ordered to report anything out of the ordinary. And one of the little sub-themes in the movie, they never really say what's going on, but is clearly this city or you know village or whatever they're in has become sort of militarized or something recently and there are new rules and things have sort of changed so there's you know there's stuff going on here mm-hmm. hey, imagine los alamos or someplace yeah like yeah went through the same thing so the father heads up the trail in the backyard and at the top of the hill we see in the sand, this sort of dilation that's opening in the sand. And we hear this creepy music that we're going to hear many more times. It's sort of a choral music, you know, the voices. Yeah, it's it's kind of pretty and kind of off a little. Yeah. And also, uh, you know, they did this in 2001, uh, a few years later. Basically the same kind of sound effect. So again, you have to wonder if this might have influenced them. Hmm. We see the father run up to the top of the hill, and then we don't see him go into the sand, but we see the sand dilation close up. Yeah, it's it's basically just they drain some sand through a funnel <laughs> or something, and, and then they'll play it backwards when they want to show the hole <laughs> right. filling in. I think it's another case where their budget problems are actually effective, because we never actually see someone sucked into the sand. We only see kind of the before and the after, and that means we have to you know, filling in for ourselves. Yeah. In the morning, the mother comes out to the porch in her dressing gown and she's calling for her husband. His name is George. And she begins walking up the same hill. So, uh oh, <laughs> what's going to happen to her? <laughs> but the creepy music freaks her out and she runs back home. <laughs> <laughs> Good choice. Yeah. And then she's talking to two cops in front of the house and she's reporting her husband's disappearance. The cops are skeptical, and one of them says, did your husband ever disappear before? And I'm, at first I'm thinking it's like, you know, like he's having an affair or something, right? But he says, you know how Mm -hmm. these scientists are. (laughs) It's kind of funny, (laughs) because his wife said, he's an engineer, not a comic book professor. (laughs) (laughs) So the cops go to the top of that hill, and they're standing near the fence, and they don't see anything. (laughs) I like this. One of them finds a flashlight and he picks it up and it has a monogram that says George McLean on it. And I'm like, who puts their name on a flashlight? <laughs> I put my initials in my thermos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, yeah, I'm a George McLean type. Then we see the sand start to dilate and uh, the cops, you know, as you need to do, they split up. <laughs> One of them finds a shoe. And then he suddenly throws his arms up and disappears, <laughs> we assume, into the sand. And meanwhile, the mother and son are at the son's bedroom window speculating on what's going on. And behind them, the father suddenly shows up. And he's gone from being this you know, really nice, accommodating father to being really rude. <laughs> and he demands a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he's not, I mean, we'll see more and more. He, he's... He's not just, like, emotionless, I don't think. I think he's, like you said, he's actively rude. He's he's just obnoxious, (laughs) hateful. (laughs) Yeah, we get a shot of his... In a low-key way. Yeah, we get a shot of his face, and he's pretty zombie-like. And the wife hugs him since, you know, he's been missing, and he shows absolutely no emotion. 
And she asked him what happened. He's like, well, I stopped over to see Bill Wilson. And <laughs> perfectly reasonably, she says, in your pajamas. And I love his response. Like, in my pajamas, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then she notices that he's missing a shoe. So that's a little curious. That was the shoe that the cops found, right? And she says, you know, we should update the cops. They're out there looking for you. And he's not happy to hear that there are cops. He doesn't want to have to answer questions. But but then he then he gets to the important thing. He insists that she finally get him his coffee. So <laughs> While she's getting his coffee, David asks his father if he saw anything out there. And again, he's just obnoxious. He's like, no. And, and, and almost all this time we're talking about, he's like sitting in a chair and he's not looking at anyone. So he's looking away from everybody. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, let's not start that flying saucer nonsense again. So he doesn't want to hear about it. And it's at this point that David, because he's behind him, because his father's not looking at him, and he sees this red X scar on his father's neck. Yeah, it's just a little tiny thing, but it's noticeable. Yeah, and it's accompanied by a scary musical note, <laughs> so we know it's important. He asks his dad about it, and <laughs> his dad comes up with his bizarre story. He says he's caught his neck. On a barbed wire fence. It happens. Yeah, but David says, starts to say, well, there isn't any barbed wire around here. And in the middle of his sentence, his dad, you know, just backhands him viciously and sends him to the floor. Yeah, it's kind of a surprising moment because we got our initial impressions of the dad were very warm and positive. Yeah, and it was surprising for the actor, too, because the boy, David, he wasn't quite on his mark. And so when he gets backhanded, he really gets hit, <laughs> so, which, you know, uh, not good for him, but it's good for the movie. He gives you a nice uh, realistic yeah. shot. <laughs> well, it probably toughened him up a little. Yeah. And now the cops show up and guess what? They're all zombie-like. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And they have this weird conversation with the father. They're kind of all clearly in on this thing and they're like, oh, we're not going to report this. And. The father says, everyone's going to forget this entire matter. <laughs> and uh, the wife offers to get the officer's coffee, but the husband says they have important work to do. And one of the cops says, and you too. And he says, yes, I know. So there's this whole thing, some kind of conspiracy going on here. We don't we don't know what's yeah, up. Yeah. yeah, I mean, at first I read it as uh, he was sucking up to him, saying, oh, you're cops, you have important work to do. But uh, uh, it does have a little more conspiratorial tone than that. And the wife actually offered or asks about it, I think. Mm. Uh, and he gives her some nasty reply, <laughs> mind your own business type thing. Yeah. Now we switch to David and he's in the backyard and there's a bunch of bushes there and everything. And he's taken his telescope with him. And for some reason, don't know why. And he's looking through the bushes with the telescope and up the hill and he sees a young girl disappear into the sand. Get a lot of foot traffic on that hill. Yeah. Uh, and he runs home. And his father confronts him at home and keeps him from talking to his mother. And he tells him to go play at his friend's place and warns him not to spread stories about things you imagined out in those fields. <laughs> so David runs off. And then the wife comes in. And this is significant. She's She's gone from, you know, she's a very cheery person and she had this relatively cheery clothing. But now she's in a completely black outfit. And that's going to become significant shortly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's putting on her gloves because, of course, in the 1950s, you know, women wore gloves if they're going to go out. 
And mm. she and her husband are supposed to go into town, but first her husband wants to show her something outside. <laughs> and we see him take her up the infamous hill, and we see the sand dilating open. <laughs> and we don't see anything yeah. else. Now, David arrives at a house. It's not the friend's house that his father had sent him to. It's Kathy's house, the girl that he saw going to the sand. And he tells her mother that she's gone. He saw her going to the sand pit, and she's freaking out. But then little Kathy shows up holding a bouquet of flowers. <laughs> and I love this. This is one freaky little girl, right? I mean, she's now a zombie, and oh, my God, her face is just so, you know, disturbing. Yeah, she does a she does a good job of being creepy. <laughs> the mother gets mad at David for scaring her when nothing actually happened. Um, you know, tells me made up this story, and he just keeps repeating that he's sorry and he runs off. But he when he runs off, he goes to the back of the house, which is fortunate because he sees that their cellar. You know, they have one of those classic again. I think this is still true in the Midwest and everything, but you know those things where in the back of the house there's the doors that open up down to yeah, the cellar. Storm, storm doors or whatever they are. Yeah. yeah. And he sees that uh, the doors are open and there's fire in the cellar. And he calls to the mother and they get a hose and they try to hold it off. And a neighbor comes and tries to help them out. And he says the fire department's not going to be able to help because he real he sees a can of gas down there. Someone has spread gasoline all over the basement. And, uh, you know, the mother says, that's not possible. We keep the gas, you know, in, in another place. But somebody got the gas and spread it all over the basement. <laughs> and speaking of somebody, the girl then, Kathy, shows up and stares impassively. <laughs> and the mother asks her if she was playing in the cellar. And she says, no, mama. <laughs> and then after her mother runs off, she gets this really evil little smile. <laughs> <laughs> and it. I want. Have you seen this meme about this little girl watching a fire? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a suburban house in the background's a little bit out of focus, and there's like a firefighters hosing it down and all that. But then in the foreground, this girl is standing facing it, but her face is turned toward the camera, and she's got this enigmatic smile. Yes, yeah, so this. Yeah, I was yeah, going to send you the picture if you hadn't seen it. This this reminded me of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a that's a classic meme at this point. <laughs> so now David runs to a store to use a payphone, and as we've said in previous episodes, kids, if you don't know what a payphone is, you know, <laughs> Google it. <laughs> um, but again, this store is a great example of how they manage a low budget, right? We have this little tiny table with like five cans on it and a woman who's like trying to choose what she's going to get. And then this phone in the background. So this takes up about two feet, right? <laughs> like clearly they have a corner of a room <laughs> and, and they just, you know, did this shot and it, it represents the entire store. So that's kind of brilliant. Yeah. You know, a, uh, a lot of the things, well, uh, this, this particular way, as I was reading about this movie, I read some about the minimalist production design and so on. And I, a lot of the production design didn't stick in my mind because I like the more, uh, ornate stuff, you know, the art mm -hmm. deco and, the, you know, all that kind of stuff. But, uh, um, I, from you describing this store scene, I can't even picture it. So I guess the fact that it didn't stand out as cheap to mm -hmm. me is probably a testament <laughs> to its uh, effectiveness. Yeah. So David, uh, naturally enough, calls the observatory. <laughs> and, 
The receptionist there is very familiar with him, but she tells him that the professor is out until the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I love this trope in science fiction. It's especially true in British science fiction, early science fiction, right? Every time something happens, the first thing you do is call the eminent scientist in town, you know, and they, they're all wise and everything. So we have that in this story. Yeah. And, but since the eminent scientist isn't currently available, David runs to the next logical person to help, which is the local gas station attendant. Well, they're trained to be smiling and helpful, you know. Yeah. Unfortunately, though, he's not too helpful. Uh, you know, David tells him some of his story, and he's like, I'll be right back. And David's like, you're going to call my dad, aren't you? <laughs> he's like, oh, just wait there. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, so David runs off because he knows that's not going to be helpful. And he goes to the next place for help. You know, we've, you talked about authorities and him trusting authorities. So basically, he's going from one authority to another to find someone to help him. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not as, it's not like he's like, oh, I'm going to solve it. You know, he's not some superhero little kid. He's trying to find an adult who will help him out. Right. So he goes to the police station. And this is another really interesting minimalist set because it's just a hallway <laughs> with a table at the end, right? And the table has like two lamps on it and there's a clock on the wall. And later in this, in the movie, we're going to see another scene that reuses this hallway for another purpose. So it's like, well, we got this hallway, so we're going to do what we can with it. (laughs) And David runs up to the table and insists to, you know, the person there that he must see the chief right away. And the clerk makes it clear that his job is to vet people who want to see the chief. But then the chief appears in his office doorway anyway, and we immediately see he's a zombie chief. Have no idea why he would have been out, you know, in the hill behind David's house, but uh, somehow that seems to have happened. Hmm. Yeah, and and it, it wasn't it wasn't clear to me at first. I, d- I didn't even really suspect at, at first until they went on. And yeah, well, you get this alone. shot of his face, and he's pretty dead. But yeah, I mean, David doesn't realize it yet, so it's possible to not realize it. And he insists on talking to him alone, so they go into his office. And David tells him he doesn't want his father to know about this. <laughs> but like the gas station attendant, the chief immediately turns around and gets on the phone to call his father. And because he's turned around, David can see his neck. And uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so David attempts to run away, but he runs into the clerk at the door. And the chief says to put David into detention until his old man arrives. So the clerk carries David away as he babbles about the chief's neck and <laughs> about how they're going to try and kill David. You know, he's kind of figured things out at this point and the chief leaves to find david's father meanwhile you know the clerk is bothered by the stuff david has been saying so he calls a doctor to come and check out the boy and the doctor arrives and it's a woman (laughs) Hmm. and the actress her name is helena carter it was interesting because every role she'd had before this she was the romantic interest this was the very first time she had a role where she wasn't the romantic interest. She was just playing a professional character. And then after this hmm. movie, she retired from acting. So kind of interesting. Yeah. And I it's kind of too bad she retired. I thought she was pretty good. Yeah. I, it is kind of implied that there might be a romance between her and the astronomer. Uh, I, I think there's a, one or two lines of dialogue that gave me yeah. the impression that they knew each other pretty well. Yeah. But I'm going to be but, controversial uh, in a bit and say there's a bit of tension between her and David. <laughs> uh, anyway, so she tells David he can tell her anything, and he asks to see the back of her neck. <laughs> so this is the beginning of 
him being kind of kinky, right? And and the clerk is like, what? Or, you know, the the cop clerk is like, what are you saying? But she's like, no, it's okay. And you know, she shows in the back of her neck. And so he then tells her the whole story. And he they're in this prison cell, right? Again, this is this very minimalist noir like framing. Because all you have are the bars and these walls and then the shadow of the bars over them, right? Which is a classic mm-hmm. film noir sort of thing. And the doctor doesn't know what to think about David's story, but she can tell he's serious. So she leaves and she asks the clerk if two policemen reported his father missing this morning. And he says no. She's like, well, but if they'd checked this out, even if nothing happened, they would have had to report it, yes. And he said yes. So she then uses the chief's phone to make a call. And while she's doing that, David's now zombified mother shows up, you know, in her her all black outfit. You know, again, I said the significance of her having switched to black is she's now pure evil. Yeah, she's been taken over by the invader singular from Mars. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, it turns out the doctor called the scientists at the observatory and this time he's in. And as you mentioned, turns out they know each other very well. You know, who knows how well. And he tells her David used to use the telescope all the time before things got so hush-hush around here. So, you know, whatever whatever they started working on locally that changed everything. Mm-hmm. And David's mother starts to take him from the police station, and their, the father meets him at the door. And he, I think David hasn't figured out that his mother has been taken yet, but when he sees his father, he gets very upset. Um, and they're about to take him out, but then the doctor arrives and stops them. <laughs> And she says David is in her care and he's going to stay here. <laughs> and she grabs him and she's hugging him closely. This is again another like, okay, it's it's pretty uh, pretty intimate there. And I love this bit because David's mother says he's been reading those trashy science fiction magazines and he's completely out of control. <laughs> it's like, hey, I resemble <laughs> that remark. You know? I used to read those trashy science fiction magazines as a kid. And in fact, at one point, my parents, because when I would read things, uh, and my parents were very religious, as a evangelical relig- cult that we belonged to. And when I, I read very intensely, and when I would read something that affected me for a couple days afterwards, I would kind of wander around like a zombie, like it would just sort of take over my brain. And so, beca- and because of that, and because they felt my reading would make me rebellious, my parents actually banned me from reading anything but schoolwork. <laughs> so, oh, wow. So I had this pile of books on my desk at school, and during recess, <laughs> I would take them out and read them. And it was exactly these trashy science fiction magazines. So my, <laughs> my parents would be totally on board with the the alien mother here. <laughs> Let's see. And so now the doctor is like, well, David has a fever, and he has every symptom of polio. And she's totally making this up. But it's really interesting because it just takes you back to another time when polio was a big deal at that time, right? I mean, now we've, we've mm-hmm. eradicated it. But... Uh, lots of kids got polio. Was a reasonable excuse. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my relatives would have been a kid in the fifties, I believe, and and she got polio. Mm. Uh, had uh, had quite a you know some some lingering effects from that throughout life. So it was a serious business. Yeah. So his parents reluctantly leave without him, and finally, at that point, David realizes that his mother has been converted. And the clerk's like, oh, he's all sick. I'll take him to the hospital. And the doctor says, oh, no, he's not sick. I just made that up. (laughs) And she tells David it's a good thing she talked to Stuart, the scientist, uh, uh, about him. Because that's how she realized that he had a good head on his shoulders and she should protect him. 
And then we switch to the observatory and the scientist is sitting with David and the doctor and he's making a mysterious call. And it turns out he's calling a general and the general is out. So he leaves his code name for the general to call. So it's a, again, it's just clear that like everybody in this town has sort of been deputized. You know, they're, they're part of the government or whatever secret project is going on. Mm-hmm. And this scientist has that classic role we've talked about in a number of films. You know, it was in King Kong it was in Quatermass, you know, somebody where the person who immediately understands everything that's going on. <laughs> yeah. So he says, well, the spaceship could be from a mothership that's just above the Earth's atmosphere. And then he asked David what planet is closest right now, and that's Venus. But yes, but <laughs> which planet is closest in its orbit? And David says Mars. And so it's a good thing they didn't call this invaders from Venus. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to be uh, to be nitpicky about it, I don't think we ever get any definitive proof that this invader is from Mars. So it could be invader from Pasadena for all we know. <laughs> well, I'm going to trust the scientist over you. <laughs> all right. It's your funeral. <laughs> and now they climb some stairs in the room to a big telescope. But again, this room is another classic thing because it's literally just a wall with a you know, with a picture of space on it and then these stairs and, and this telescope looking thing. Like, so again, <laughs> there's like almost nothing in this scene, but you know, it communicates uh, observatory. So it works. And, and again, it, it didn't strike me as visually striking, but on the other hand, it, it didn't make me think, Oh God, that's cheap. You know, so <laughs> I mean, right. it was a fair, it hit a happy medium, I guess. <laughs> So we see from outside the observatory dome open and rotate, and it rotates and rotates and <laughs> rotates. Yeah, now that's where I thought, oh, God, that's cheap. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking this like that early scene in the first Star Trek movie where they just kept showing the ship, you know, as they were going along it. Yeah, I, I take your word for it. It's been a long time since I saw that Yeah, one. that was, Yeah. <laughs> And the scientist says there's a, a steward, you know, says there's a theory that Martians live underground. <laughs> and when the doctor talks, uh, questions him about this, he has this really weird thing. He says, well, she says, how can he know that? And he says, well, there's also no way to disprove the theory that Martians have bred a race of mutants. <laughs> we'll talk about mutants as we go along. That's how they pronounce mutants. Uh, the Martians have bred a race of mutants to help the Martians survive. And I'm like, what? what? You know, what theory? That the Mar <laughs> we don't even know the Martians exist, and there's a theory that they've bred this race. You know, <laughs> what is this about? <laughs> but I guess, no, we can't really disprove it, you know, but I have no idea how he knows about it. He'll turn out to be right. Again, he's the scientist who knows everything. <laughs> well, I guess once you know about all the canals they have there, everything yep. else is just simple deduction. <laughs> yep. Um, and then the scientist focuses the telescope on this very 1950s style rocket on the ground. It, this is a very flexible space telescope because they're able to look at great detail on the ground. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, it's got quite a range of focal points, I guess. Yeah, and he says once they can get this rocket into space, and it turns out this rocket, I guess, is the secret project that everyone in town is, is working on, right? And once they can get the rocket into space, they can anchor it there. And from there, they can launch missions from it. If only we'd been smart enough to take that approach. <laughs> so, yeah, he's just showing this national security secret to the <laughs> local <Bastard>. kid. <laughs> 
And, uh, and I also know. love this part because, you know, I'm at first it's like, oh, this is how we're going to explore space and everything. But then he's like, and if any nation dared attack us, we could push a few buttons and wipe it out in a few minutes. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and he assumes the Martians know we're making progress because of this rocket, and so they want to stop us. And once again, he is uh, displaying a very uh, educated guessing mechanism yeah. here. Uh, yeah, all the information he has so far is this little kid has <laughs> told him this stuff. Um, <laughs> but he points out in terms of who the Martians have taken over, that David's dad works at the factory where they make the engine for the rocket, which David didn't even know because his father would never, of course, tell him what he was working on. Right. And it turns out little Kathy Wilson's father is the physicist who conceived of the rocket, you know, and they got her to burn down the house. And now they use the telescope to look at that hill behind David's house. So again, this is a really, really <laughs> flexible and good telescope. And they see, and it's so good, they see David's father taking General Mayberry out to the sand, and we see him fall in. Yeah, so it was good timing on their part. Yeah. <laughs> so now Stewart makes an emergency call to Colonel Fielding. And I, I know I've seen this guy in other movies. He's a classic, you know, he has this, like, mustache. I don't know. He's just this classic older guy with a mustache who's seen in a zillion films. Yeah, he's got a got a photogenic uh, face. He, he, you can see him being like a character actor, and right. you, know, you can imagine he'd be use, useful for a lot of purposes. And he needs no convincing at all. He's immediately, you know, understands everything that's going on, and he contacts the chief of staff of the Pentagon. America is swinging into action here. And he orders up a huge number of military units. <laughs> He's just like, you know, we need this, and we need that, and we need this. Um, and then he calls the local police station, and on finding out the chief of police is missing, he puts out an APB on him and David's parents and the missing police officers. So the, this colonel is really on top of things. <laughs> <laughs> and now we get the first of many extended sequences where we watch tanks and such get driven out of storage and moved into position. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the deal here is, this is a really short film, as I mentioned earlier. So after the director left, you know, they, I think I said all this already. But anyway, they, this is one of those shots that they just inserted after the fact, and there's going to be many more. Yeah, there's there's a lot of between the telescope and the tanks, and then uh, <laughs> we get to see these uh, creatures running through tunnels. Uh, <laughs> and then the point a, where we see the entire of... movie again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that too yeah and uh yeah I, I one of the things one of the thoughts i had about this movie is that it could be a really thrilling 45 minute television episode <laughs> mm -hmm. uh but uh they added another 35 minutes to it. <laughs> yeah. uh so now we see colonel fielding and the scientist and the doctor are all at David's house. And he's sitting in that chair his father was in earlier. And he's just told everyone the story again. And they all now head over to Kathy's house. And this is pretty dark because she's this little girl. And it turns out Kathy is dead. She just died suddenly. Yeah. Yeah, that's always, uh, you know, especially for a 1950s movie, you don't expect that sort of thing a lot. Uh, I mean, it did happen, you know. The death of little Nell back in the 1800s. But, uh, I mean, it's not something you see a lot, or I, I haven't seen a lot in movies of this time. Yeah, and they're told she was playing, and then she just suddenly died instantly of cerebral hemorrhage. 
And the doctor wants to see her body because he says, you know, cerebral hemorrhage is, doesn't make a lot of sense at that age. <laughs> and now we get more military footage. This time we're just seeing extended shots of soldiers being moved around by train. <laughs> I love this. Now we switch to the colonel and the scientist and David, and they're on top of his roof. And this is not a flat roof. You know, this is the... Yeah, it's know, a gabled roof. Yeah, and so, like... It's a really dangerous thing to be in. <laughs> They're just all sitting up there casually using some binoculars to look out at his hill, the hill in his backyard. And they're trying to figure out exactly where this is happening, but no one is sure. And while they're talking, the colonel's assistant, Rinaldi, sneaks off to check things out on his own. Maybe he didn't display the best adult decision making. <laughs> yeah. He's the exception. Yeah, especially after the colonel said no one's going to get any closer than this. Yep. <laughs> And that's the first half of the movie. Well, a couple new soldiers have shown up, and it turns out that one of them is Roth, an electronics expert. And they're speculating about why something could be down in the sand pit. And he says, well, in theory, an advanced enough technology could use infrared to melt through the <laughs> ground. And if there was oh, if there was a weapon like that, uh, too bad for us because we don't have a counter weapon. <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Rinaldi has gone out to the sand pit. Before we just saw him disappear, we didn't know exactly what he was doing, but he's gone exploring the sand pit. And uh, the officers watch him through binoculars. He's prodding the sand with his rifle and all, stuff, all that stuff, and he finally sinks in. The kid hears these weird choral sounds as it's happening. That So we're, we're the movie's <laughs> training us to associate this chorus with the... Uh, activities of the saucer. Rinaldi sinks into the sand. Uh, I think he actually shoots a few rounds down there uh, as he's sinking. And then we get stock footage. It's a train full of tanks. <laughs> then we see night. It's the hill again, but uh, now the searchlights are sweeping the ground all up and down the path. <laughs> Dr. Blake returns. Uh, she had gone to check on the... Uh, cadaver of the little girl and uh, she confirmed it was a cerebral hemorrhage and she found this little tiny metal doohickey surgically implanted mm. at the base of her brain um, and there was a little what's it on, on the doohickey that uh, was what uh, it's like, they said it was a little piece there. of platinum you know <laughs> yeah mm. so Which seems it has kind of platinum is expensive so, <laughs> so these Martians <laughs> have some resources oh yeah yeah, their rivers are probably running with platinum on Mars. <laughs> so the the kid, David, he realizes now that his parents probably have these exact same gadgets in their skulls, uh, which means that not only are they being remote controlled, but they also can be killed by remote control. Yeah, and even though his parents have been jerks to him, he really loves them and he's really upset at the yeah, idea well, that this might happen to them. He's, he's mature enough to make a distinction between the parents he knows and these obviously not in the right minds parents that he's dealing with now. Um, in fact, a few times he, you know, people say, suggest that his parents might be bad people or whatever, and, and he always leaps to yep. their defense. He's, oh, no, they're wonderful, they're great, or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so he's, yeah, he's surprisingly mature about this uh and he's very concerned for for his parents knowing that that at the snap of uh 
the Martian invaders' fingers, uh, mm. if he even has fingers, uh, <laughs> they could just drop dead. So one of the soldiers speculates that, that since these people are being remote-controlled, maybe the signals for the remote control can be found. Uh, now, we probably wouldn't be able to decipher any kind of useful meaning out of them, but they could be perhaps used to trace a, uh, where the spaceship is exactly. Mm. So they're going to get on that. Um, and then we see more footage of the <laughs> tanks. This time they're going down a road, and then uh, after we've seen a good minute or so of tanks, then uh, they switch it up a little and we see a truck convoy. So right. it's not all and, tanks. And it's hard to describe when we just say this, but these things go on and on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They they were not shy about I mean, using the stock footage. They added something like 10 plus minutes <laughs> of this stuff, so. Well, I can I can believe it, you know, and when when you factor in all the different kinds of padding, there's mm. you know, who knows how much it could go. That's up why there. I say I think it's only like really it's only an hour, even though it's probably an hour twenty something. On, yep. Yeah. So Colonel Fielding gets a call on a field telephone, and the Armstead plant, which uh, is supplying parts and stuff for the rocket, uh, has been blown up. Uh, and we get to see what's going on at the plant, and the two mind-controlled cops that we saw earlier, they were the second and third people to fall prey to the invader from Mars. Uh, these guys are caught escaping the plant. Uh, I guess they're just looking suspicious or something, but uh, uh, other guards and cops gang up on them. And uh, when they realize that, uh, that they're in for it, uh, they both collapse dead. The Martian has used his remote control yet again. And the kid is around, David, uh, and he hears what's happened at the Armstead plant. Uh, and he prays aloud to God to help his mom and dad. So now now we've got a now we've got a prayer riding on it too, so we'll mm -hmm. have to find out if it works or not. At another facility, which I think is the rocket's actual launch pad, uh the the general who we General Mayberry who we now know is controlled, mm -hmm. and the police chief who is also controlled, they're spotted leaving, uh, carrying briefcases, and the guards uh, are under orders to stop anyone, even if it's the general. In fact, yeah. especially if it's the general. Um, and he he tries to play on his his rank, right? He's like, oh, you you know, you can't do anything to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, the so soldiers have more spine than that, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 from what I've heard of the military, it does take a certain amount of spine to stand up to a <laughs> high-ranking officer like that. Um, anyway, the guards, uh, the general and the chief, they start running away with their briefcases, and the guards fire warning shots. Um, but one of the sh warning shots hits one of the briefcases. So they were, they were playing it pretty close with the warning shots. Uh, and when the briefcase is hit, it explodes. <laughs> uh, so it looks like their briefcases were filled with explosives and they were yeah. going, they were probably, it was the rocket. I don't think they say it was the rocket, but that's what I think they were intending to do was blow that up. And in the process, of course, both the general and police chief blow up as well. So the alien didn't even have to flip a switch for that. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the farm, or the hill, the sand pit, the tanks have arrived, and we get more stock footage. <laughs> they're, they're coming in from every angle, those tanks. 
and the plan is the tanks are going to surround the field uh, while C2 charges are planted. I'm laughing because I know what comes next. Uh, while C2 charges are planted where, uh, where Rinaldi disappeared. And uh, we get more stock footage of tanks, uh, and we get a little scene where somebody says, uh, uh, the colonel says, surround the field. And the guy yells into a microphone, surround the field. And then we get more stock footage. So it's just, oh, it's very right. important to understand the strategic importance of these tanks. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> So meanwhile, David is moping by a tree. This is, this is a night. It's probably past his bedtime at this point. It, it uh, also may, uh, you know, it makes no sense that he's been left alone and he's just wandered out <laughs> into the forest. And he was... <laughs> yeah, as long as he doesn't go too close to the sand pit, I guess there's as good a place as any for him. So he's moping by a tree. The soldiers are planting the charges. And then we switch to Dr. Wilson's lab. We don't know at first this is Dr. Wilson, but he has an assistant who comes in and helps clarify the. And this lab is the same hallway that was the police station, right? So we're getting really okay. good usage out of this hallway. <laughs> yeah, yeah they, they, they gussied it up a little, though. I'm thinking it might have been, there was something colorful about this. I'm thinking it was maybe he had like four different beakers of chemicals yeah, that were each yeah. a different color. Or they, get a, so they did a good job, yeah. They added a little visual pep, and I, I didn't realize that was the same hallway. But, of course, now that you mention it, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> uh, so the assistant comes in and talks to Dr. Wilson, you know, it's late at night and he's working and it isn't clear if Dr. Wilson is mind controlled or he's just naturally reserved because we, <laughs> we knew that the alien had had something against him because he had the guy's daughter set the house yeah, on fire right. and then killed the daughter. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't think I put together the, that was who this is. That's a good point. Um, oh. but yeah, you know, scientist or zombie, it's always hard to tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in Dr. Wilson's case, it turns out that he's still a free man, and he's just working late, because uh, he always works late, and, and you might also assume that it's intended to be a kind of distraction from his daughter's death, which mm -hmm. of course would be an awful thing to endure. So David's mom, outside, she pulls up to the gate. It turns out this is a guarded military base. And she dupes the guard into checking under her hood. She's got car problems. <laughs> uh, so he plays the white knight and looks under the hood. And then the dad sneaks up and knocks out the guard, of course, and runs into the base with a rifle now that there's no guard at the gate. So he stands outside Wilson's window, and he lines up a shot on him, but Wilson drops something and bends over just as he <laughs> fires the shot. And uh, we encountered this now, I don't know, in, in our podcasting release schedule, how close this is going to be. <laughs> It'll probably be like a that, year or something. <laughs> yeah. Something we just watched fairly recently was the, uh, the Sea Beggar, the Huguenots uh, episodes of Doctor Who Season 3. Um, and that supposedly is an actual historical example of a guy being saved by bending over at the mm -hmm. right time. Uh, so and we mentioned that at the time when we discussed it, that was like a real common trope. Now, this is like more than a decade before that episode. So, you know, we could claim in this case that Doctor Who was influenced by this movie. <laughs> 
Well, it could, but it's supposedly that's an actual yeah. historical story. Now, <laughs> how true yeah. it is, we can't say, but uh, yeah. supposedly the story's been around for a while. But uh, that's a digression, of course. Uh, the zombie dad and mom, uh, his dad runs back to the car, and they make a hasty retreat. Uh, but they've got at least two jeeps of MPs pursuing them, the military policemen. Um, and the car goes into the ditch, uh, <laughs> probably because they're being remote controlled by a Martian. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like when you're playing one of those little video game things and it's really hard to get the, <laughs> get the, <laughs> the car. I mean, cars are always sucky in video games. That's all. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Fun, though, usually. <laughs> the uh, the parents survived the crash, though. They seem pretty much unharmed. Uh, and they're arrested by the military police, which is the best thing that could have happened to them. The soldiers back at the field, back at the sand pit, they set off their charges finally, and they find a chamber below. And Colonel Fielding goes down first, which is... Uh, yeah, he's not one to lead from the rear, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was like that Star first. Trek thing where, you know, well, let's send the captain and the, you know, the chief uh, medical officer, et cetera, into danger <laughs> first. <laughs> the most crucial crew members go on the away team. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so he goes down there, and he's in the an underground tunnel, a little cavern-like tunnel, uh, and the walls are lined with translucent spheres, almost almost like a geode, but with balls instead of crystals. Uh, and Wikipedia claims that they tried using balloons for this and they didn't look right on film, but they did have success they could be happy with when they tried inflated condoms. <laughs> <laughs> and it does look pretty good. There are a couple points where you can see them wave in the breeze when some people run by them <laughs> fast, but that's not, that's just and one or two. Before, scenes. you know, I'd, uh, from the background materials I watched, uh, they talk about the condoms. And I will say, I just thought it looked really good, and I had no idea that that's what it was. So, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, they did a pretty good job there. I mean, I think about, if you remember, talk about an ancient episode for us now, um, the Keys of Marinus, right? And there was this snow tunnels where they just put some, like, um, oh, saran like wrap on the walls or whatever. The <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this looks way better than that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, uh it seems that the alien operation, the saucer, whatever it is the alien brought down here, we know it's a saucer, but they haven't seen it. But then again, they had David to tell them it was a saucer, so it's a good assumption. Anyway, the whole operation is relocated. It seems that uh, the aliens are melting a whole tunnel network underground. So they go back above ground, and fortunately... One of their scientist types has invented a magic wand that should detect the saucer's vibrations underground. It's, you know, you'd hold it down to the ground like a metal detector, uh, except it has a pointy crystal on the end instead of a big square plate. <laughs> and being veterans of Doctor Who, we're used to this kind of invention. <laughs> oh, yeah. Dr. Blake gets a call on the field phone, and, and she goes to tell David that his mom and dad are in surgery right now. Mm. So he's he's optimistic about that, but but she warns him that they're not actually under the knife yet. The doctor has to come all the way from Middletown, which is an hour away, 
And her advice ends up being, <laughs> try not to think about it. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's about the best advice you could give, but uh, on the other hand, it's real hard not to think about something like that. Mm. And after she gives him that advice, he's going to get a distraction that might help with that because he suddenly hears that weird chorus mm -hmm. again, and he and the doctor vanish underground. Yep. Unfortunately, the astronomer slash possible boyfriend was <laughs> nearby and heard heard the sound of the chorus and the vanishing and so forth, and he summoned some soldiers to come over and check it out. Meanwhile, underground, David and the doctor are down in the tunnels, and they get the they get a glimpse of the mutants. <laughs> and these guys, their faces are creepy. Their faces are like they look like they're almost a black bronze or something. Uh, and and their eyes, they've got these round bug eye type things, but they're covered with these eyelids, so they just look like they're really stoned. And then they have a. Uh, these green velour onesies <laughs> that look like the Grinch. So not the most impressive alien monsters yeah. I've and, seen. And I just say this isn't kind of famously um, the worst thing, I think, in the movie. Because, you know, we've talked about this uh, over and over. Like, oh, their low budget made them be very creative about their staging. And the staging is actually very artistic and interesting. And this is a case where the low budget means, like you say, you have a onesie with a zipper up the back, and it does, it looks terrible. You know, uh, it's clear that, you know, the director was not a costume designer. He probably relied on other people for that. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the biggest negative in the movie because these guys really bring it down. Yeah, they're, they're a little too close to Teletubbies. Yeah, to be, exactly. Uh, really, uh, really imposing. So we get finally to see the Martian invader, singular, uh, and the two of these mutants are carrying him to a little pedestal where they're going to set his terrarium globe down. This this globe is about two feet across, and it's a it's a head, mostly a head with some kind of small tiny body that's almost probably not any larger than the head, possibly smaller. And uh, he's got some tentacles sticking out that are kind of scaly and ugly. So it's not, it, it's okay. It's not the scariest or ugliest alien in the world, but uh, what it does have is a really punchable face. <laughs> he's, uh, you know, it, it's sometimes, sometimes to be charitable, it looks serene, but most of the time it just looks smug to me. But I think, uh, you know, I probably find this more compelling than you do. First of all, I should mention, it's kind of like covered in gold paint. Yeah, it's it's more like, a, a, yeah, some kind of grayish metallic, I think. Yeah, but yeah and this is actually of... a, a little person, a woman, and I just, I love the expressions oh, and the, yes. yeah. Uh, I love the expression and the eyes, and I love the fact that there's no dialogue or anything. I mean, you just have to understand that this, Martian is controlling everyone and has all these looks and everything. And, and I don't know, I thought it was pretty compelling. I mean, a very, very big contrast to the, you know, the zippered, uh, mutants. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it, it, it's not bad. It's, it's memorable. And, uh, but boy, for some reason, the, the alien's facial expression just, uh, <laughs> just makes me want to smack the smug off of it. I don't know. <clears throat> 
So anyway, he gets all set up on his pedestal there, and the mutants drag David and the doctor towards this throne room of sorts where mm. they're going to meet with the, the Martian. And we we see some other mutants uh, are melting a wall. They've got some sort of heat ray rifle that uh, we see the wall heat up into this red goop that starts simmering. And according to the information I read, this was actually oatmeal, which was <laughs> would have been on my probably top 10 guesses as to what that was. <laughs> but uh, this molten rock... Uh, is it's bright red, uh, so they put a filter over it or something. But it, uh, uh, the melting rock yeah. is oatmeal. And I'll say for the and effects, this one didn't really work for me because I I kind of had a hard time understanding what was going on. Right, all of a sudden you're just looking mm. at this. It, it I didn't really pick up the idea that oh there was a wall and now they've done this and now it's turned into whatever. It just you know I I just thought it was kind of weird. But yeah, and it. Simultaneously, it gets more and less clear at the end when they are at the end of the melting when there's suddenly a small explosion. So the wall just sort of vanishes mm-hmm. um, where you might expect to see hot magma flowing along the floor or something after they've just finished melting rock. That would be my expectation, but I guess an explosion is good mm-hmm. too. So now the mutants are carrying the prisoners. They're not just dragging anyone. Hmm. They're still on the way to this terrarium. Meanwhile, the soldiers above are searching the sand with their magic wand, and finally they spot the saucer. So they have a clever plan. They're going to set up a distraction, Hmm. and the tanks are to attack a different area, a decoy area, while they're setting charges in the place where they found the saucer. Uh, so they're trying to be a little sneaky about mm-hmm. it. Finally, the doctor and David have been brought to the throne room. And <laughs> when you say the doctor they... and David, I, uh, you know, <laughs> since we usually do Doctor Who, <laughs> just oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Doctor Blake and David, <laughs> <laughs> they've finally arrived at this throne room, and Rinaldi is there, and he's been mind controlled. And he asks questions under the Martian's guidance. He's basically speaking for the Martian, or the mm. Martian speaking through him. And he asks, what are they doing up above? Um, and, of course, uh, the doctor and uh, David, they have no idea what's going on up above now. But there's some explosions going on up there. And it's the, that's the, uh, the big decoy maneuver going on. And I think somewhere in here, I forgot to take a note on it, but I think the Martian also momentarily brags about being a superior intellect and having these slave creatures mm-hmm. who do everything he wants and so forth. So, uh, yeah, at some point the Martian gives a short little introduction of what a jerk he is. It's always nice to have slaves if you can manage it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, until you make them mad and they get back at you. <laughs> So the soldiers blow up their charges, um, and they put a ladder in the hole that's resulted. Meanwhile, the mutants drag the doctor to an operating table elsewhere in the throne room, and the Martian just sits there looking smug and inscrutable. <laughs> I actually put that in my notes. That must have stood out in my mind. And the stock footage continues attacking the decoy area, even though the charges have already <laughs> gone off over the saucer. 
Well, now back in the throne room, the mutants flip Dr. Blake over, and a cone of silence descends. It's a tube with a with the plastic uh, semicircle on it. Uh, it's very much like the cone of silence from uh, Get Smart. Mm-hmm. And Rinaldi, meanwhile, while she's going in the operating table, Rinaldi is just dragging David all over the tunnels. Maybe, maybe he's got some purpose in dragging him, or maybe he's just enjoying it. But Colonel Fielding hears David yelling, and fortunately what David is yelling is, Colonel Fielding, Colonel Fielding. <laughs> so he knows that he's talking to him. And meanwhile, in the throne room, the cone of silence slowly extends a probe wire with a sinister yeah. chip on it, just like the chip that we saw extracted from poor dead Kathy's neck. Mm-hmm. So the soldiers down in the tunnels, they meet their first mutant, and they blast it. But it gets back up, and the second volley seems to finish it off, and they pass by, and then after they're gone, it gets up again. <laughs> so it's, these two guys are tough, I'll give them that. And uh, it then sneaks into the saucer. Uh, at this point, the soldiers have, have made it into the saucer, uh, sneaks up on him and grabs him, and in the middle of the room, there's a, there's a big hole, like uh, like the fire pole hole in Ghostbusters. You know, and uh, he grabs the soldier and then jumps down <laughs> with him into the throne room. So uh, we will find out that the mutant survived the fall. I'm not sure about the soldier. Meanwhile, two mutants move the Martian's terrarium somewhere else, out of the throne room anyway. And there's one remaining mutant fighting the soldiers in the throne room. This is probably the guy who just came through the hole in the Mm. ceiling. And the astronomer gets in there and rescues the doctor from the operating table before she can get the implant. So he saved saved her from that fate anyway. And uh, the colonel orders uh, explosive charges to be planted in the ship. They're going to blow it to hell. And he also orders a search for David and Rinaldi, who are both missing. The doctor and the astronomer make it to the ladder, and they escape to the surface. And more soldiers then go down the ladder into the hole to look for David. Uh, and the stock footage is still firing on the decoy <laughs> area. They're going to make sure they're doing, given the best damn decoy they can. <laughs> And the mutants melt themselves a new wall with the oatmeal effect and all that. Um, and this time, they're melting the wall where the ladder goes up to the surface, which means they're burying it in rock. Just clever strategy if you want to kill some soldiers. And we hear the weird chorus start up again. And inside the ship where they're setting the, the charges, the colonel realizes this, this sound is probably the ship getting ready to take off this time. Three soldiers in the tunnels hold off the mutants uh, while the explosive explosives expert sets the charges on the saucer on a six-minute timer. Uh, and you can guess that that narrow window will mm-hmm. come back to play a role in this plot here. Colonel Fielding, as they're leaving the saucer, everybody's out of it now except for uh, the invader from Mars, uh, Colonel Fielding throws a grenade to block off the ship, you know, cause a little cave-in. That'll keep the mutants out, keep them from uh, removing the detonator. It'll also keep the humans from going back into the saucer. Uh, 
The colonel and company get back to the ladder, or where the ladder should be, only to find that it's been buried in the cave-in from the clever mutants. Meanwhile, the soldiers find David and Rinaldi. Rinaldi is dazed and semi-unconscious uh, and still, still mind-controlled. Uh, they rescue them, and uh, Rinaldi walks along with the soldiers guiding him. He seems sort of dazed. One of the soldiers mentions that they're not going anywhere, really, because they're sealed in. Uh, the ladder's been covered. Uh, David suggests using this handy heat ray gun that was dropped nearby. Uh, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> it's worth a try. So now we're down to under two minutes before the explosion and then 90 seconds. And David shows up with his heat ray and he saves the day by melting the cave in. <laughs> the little boy ends up being the hero of the moment. <laughs> and everyone goes up the ladder. The ship begins taking off and, you know, we discussed before when that ship buried itself in the sand pit, uh, the... Uh, the green glow of the ship going under the dirt that was packing itself around it. Um, and this is that footage reversed, I presume. It looks, if it isn't, it's, mm. it's they, they could have <laughs> done the, they could have played it in, how am I going to express this? If this isn't that footage in its forward orientation, and it may as well be they wasted it. It is, yeah. <laughs> it is, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then we see a brief shot of the stock footage bombarding the ship. <laughs> they just they just can't let that stock footage go. Uh, and then we see a big explosion. So presumably it's a combination of the explosives on the ship and the stock footage outside the ship. David runs from the area, and this... <laughs> I mean, the the path leading up the hill isn't all that long, but he's running for a long time, long enough that a montage of every event in the whole movie can play in his head. And uh, it's probably an exaggeration, but not much of an exaggeration. Pretty much every key plot point is... Yeah, yeah, you know, when you're like, oh, we need to add another five minutes, what can we do? I know, let's show the movie again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I mean, fr from an artistic standpoint, I don't see the value in it. I mean, you're, <laughs> if it if it was like, you know, over the last five weeks on Invaders from Mars, but <laughs> but this isn't like a recap. This is like almost you know, the the like third from last scene of the movie, and they're showing us everything <laughs> yeah. that happened. And some movies will do that, like like during the credits, they'll play right. little snippets of what happened in the movie, so that you think, "Oh yeah, I forgot about that." I guess that really was a good movie. You know? But this, I mean, it's not necessary, and it it really, um, for me at least. Now your results may vary, <laughs> but for me, it just reminded me of many things that the movie. There were many ways in which the movie was just unexceptional. I'd say there were some <laughs> there were some good things about it, but but there were a lot of you know it, it was sort of flat for me at a lot of mm. moments, and a lot of those moments make it into the dream <laughs> or into the into the uh, montage uh, as he's running interminably. So the ship blows up. I, I, I said the ship blew up earlier, but it hadn't happened just yet. It was just getting bombarded hmm. by the stock footage at that point. So now the ship blows up. 
uh, and David wakes up in bed. Uh-oh, maybe you can guess where this is going. <laughs> he rushes to his parents' room, and they're, they're fine, and they never went to the hospital at all. They don't know what he's talking about. And it turns out it was all a dream. <laughs> maybe you can add some echo effect to my voice. I, I don't know what your editing tools can do. Anyway, he goes back to bed. And all is well with the world. But outside, a storm is kicking up. And he watches outside his window as a blue-green saucer lands in the sand pit. And he says, Gee whiz! <laughs> the end! So we got the double trope. We got it was all a dream, and then we got, Oh, but now the dream is actually happening. <laughs> and a funny thing about this, so when they wanted to distribute it in Europe, the Europeans would not accept the dream ending. So uh -huh. they forced them to go back and shoot new footage. So literally a year after they finished the film, they shot like eight minutes of new footage of them basically in the astronomy's, astronomer's office talking. And the kid is a year older. He's like a foot taller. <laughs> you know, he has different <laughs> hair, <laughs> et cetera. And uh, they have, in the background material of the latest release, they have a bunch of that. And it's, it's pretty funny. Um, but, uh, <laughs> well, so let's, let's talk about uh, this. I mean, um, well, let me st start with, you know, acting. I mean, well, you have the kid. What do you think of the kid? Uh... Yeah, he was fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, for, for, uh, for a kid, he wasn't all cloyingly, you know, jeepers. I mean, he was just a good all-American kid. He, he seemed to have fair head on his shoulders for a kid his age yeah, so yeah he's fine and the actor who did it he um he was only an actor while he was a kid and he actually starred with a huge number of stars and was in some pretty significant stuff but then he kind of realized you know acting is really hard <laughs> so he sort of transitioned <laughs> to, to other stuff but uh again i think he's sort of that perfect 50s kid and all the g was stuff and everything is is pretty funny um, yeah, I mean, if, if you if you got to have a kid, you may as well use this one. <laughs> well, what do you think about this kind of theme of, you know, all the adults in your life being taken over and you have to, you know, figure out what you're going to do? Well, that's, uh, that's pretty scary. I mean, uh, definitely, uh, especially for, I think I probably, when I was young, I... I probably felt more affection for the adults in my life than a lot of people. Mm. I've, I've been fortunate in that regard. Uh, so, I mean, the idea of something going wrong with that or them actually turning, turning evil or discovering, you know, they've been evil all along or something. I mean, various variations on that would be uh, pretty awful to think about. So, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a creepy premise. I mean, you know, you, you feel for the kid, especially when he starts finding out that people are being killed through remote control, and so his parents are equally vulnerable. Right. And, uh, could very easily. Uh, it's not clear. Not yeah, that, That's a good point. I hadn't thought of this. Why, when the military police captured them, didn't the alien just pop them right there? <laughs> hmm. 
Don't know. Maybe maybe their chips were damaged in the car crash. We'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, you know, the adult actors, uh, I think they do a pretty good job. They take it seriously, especially the parents, you know, and the whole conversion and and going mm-hmm. from being nice people to bad people. You know, it's it's not kind of the Ed Wood thing. Um, I mean, some of the military people, it's a little silly. And as we said, you know, the mutants are, are pretty silly and, and kind of oh, unfortunate. Yeah. Although uh, one thing I think that works really well in terms of the production design we've been talking about is that when it turns out to be a dream, that really fits into the production design, right? It, it, where there's a lot of like lack of detail and, and sort of weird lighting and, and all that. It all kind of fits into yeah, the idea that- of it being a dream. That would that would account for like like the police station just has the bare walls instead yeah. of like wanted posters <laughs> and safety notices and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that certainly makes it does does fit in with the the all a dream thing. Although you know it's just uh, it's almost uh, I I think even even at this point it was all a dream was a well-worn trope you know i mean wizard of oz was what 1939 mm. was it or 34 30 mm. mm. sometime uh so yeah it's uh i i i have to give the europeans kudos for <laughs> refusing to settle for that <laughs> well oh, so well. with all that uh, obviously i'm i'm biased because of all my nostalgia so we have to ask you as the impartial observer you know is this worth watching for a modern audience um there are things i like about it i mean the actors all the actors i i think uh they're well cast they've got distinctive enough faces that you don't see one of them later and think now who was that i mm. mean each of them you know this this guy is the colonel this is the astronomer and so forth uh uh and i mean it's there's a ton of padding, you know. Uh, I don't know. If, it might be an exaggeration to say it could be cut down to forty-five minutes, mm-hmm. but uh, not much of an exaggeration, <laughs> I don't think. From historical value, it's you know, I I always love to get a look into you know the old timey movies and see what was different and so forth, and uh, and I the restoration uh, looks good. I mean, the colors are very vivid. Uh, that's nice. Uh, I don't know. There's there's a lot of good about the movie, but it's uh, I won't feel compelled to watch it again for quite some time. <laughs> I think for me, it was worth watching. Uh, for uh, ordinary Joe on the street, um, I'd say probably unless you have an enthusiasm for. Uh, 1950s sci-fi movies and the cheesiness that goes along with them. Uh, this isn't, in my opinion, not. It's, it's of that mold. I mean, it's <laughs> maybe one of the better examples, but it doesn't like transcend the 50s cheesy science fiction movie. <laughs> uh, so I'd say worth watching for folks who like that sort of thing. Otherwise, probably not. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I agree. I mean, if you have any interest in old films or old science fiction or whatever, I think it's totally worth watching. But it, you know, and it's short, so it's not like you're gonna waste a lot of of your life on it. But yeah, it's it's uh, you know an acquired taste sort of thing. So <laughs> not 
probably <laughs> random people on the street uh, wouldn't get a lot out of it. Um, nonetheless, you know, uh, especially if you're like me and if, if, you know, as a kid, you liked stories where the kids are, you know, fixing everything while the adults are clueless. Well, this is, uh, you know, pretty good example of that, <laughs> that genre. Yeah. When you mentioned that earlier, I was trying to think about that and I'm, I'm not sure I really ever felt much of that. Like, uh, I think, I think I was always more interested in the adults in movies, hmm. uh, Maybe because I wanted to try and comprehend them, or, I, I don't know. But uh, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think I. I don't remember. I mean, there were there were characters I liked in movies, you know. And of course, uh, I had a crush on Kim Richards from the Witch, Witch Mountain movies <laughs> and so forth. But but yeah, that that didn't have anything to do with uh, enthusiasm for her heroism. That was because I thought she was cute. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I was, uh, you know, series that was huge to me was the Narnia books when I was a kid. For that very reason, it was these kids going off and becoming, you know, kings and queens in this other world. Uh, I will say, mm-hmm. uh, maybe like how you feel about this movie, if you really loved the Narnia books as a kid, I do not recommend going back and rereading them. I, I reread oh. them when the movies came out, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I was like... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this does not stand mm-hmm. up to an adult perspective. Um, Interesting. I read uh, I read at least the first one of those books, and I remember I, I enjoyed it somewhat, not overwhelmingly, but it was good enough, you know. Uh, but I haven't read those in decades and decades. So, And, and I, I didn't really care that they were kids going through mm. the wardrobe. If it had been adults, it would have been fine <laughs> with me, too. Okay. Well... Join us next week for our next host choice, which will be Capricorn One. <laughs> uh-huh, that'll be interesting. It's yeah, been a long, long. I time know, since no I idea that. how it'll stand. It's the perfect uh, film for our podcast because I think neither of us has any clue how well it's going to hold up. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we we'll, we'll find cross out. Cross our fingers. Yeah, we'll cross <laughs> our fingers and find out next week. <laughs>